0: Let's open up to Nehemiah chapter 4, Nehemiah chapter 4, and we're just going to slow it down today. We're going to go through verses 1 through 9, and it's an incredible lesson, it really is. I always kind of get dramatic with you guys, but I think it's very, very biblical, the concept that we were made with a purpose. That when God knit us together in our mother's womb, that that was only because of the fact that... In eternity past, he already had a plan for our life. But how many people really fulfill his plan and his purpose, you know? Uh, I think that probably a lot of people don't. And so when you study the book of Nehemiah, you're encouraged by this individual, but not just an individual. It's a congregation of people. It's a nation, really, that catch the vision. And what God does is God gets the glory and the people experience the blessings as a result of his obedience. And so, you know, wherever you're at, I don't know what you're going through, you guys. I don't know how you're doing in your walk with the Lord. Some of you here, maybe you're not even a Christian, you know, and God's called you here to tell you he loves you. And he doesn't want you to live like that. He doesn't want you to die like that. You know, as Christians, though, uh, God, if he gets a hold of our heart, do you guys believe this, that he can use anyone who'd be willing to surrender to him? And, you know, there are no limits to what God can do with our lives. And so... I pray you guys would be uh, encouraged by that truth, and I pray that at the end of the day, and none of us knows how long we're going to live, huh? Some of you here, you know, you might pass away tomorrow, I'm not trying to scare you. Some of you here, you got 20 years, you got 30 years, you might have 70 years left. But one day our life will be over. What then? Will you have lived your life for the Lord, you know? And so that starts today. And I think in the book of Nehemiah, what we find is an inspiration for us that, um, man, we can glean from this. We don't just come and study it and then go and, you know, we did our whatever our Thursday night thing. We come and we are changed by God. And so um, check this out. Nehemiah 4, it says in verse 1, but it so happened when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall that he was furious And very indignant and mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? Now, Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him And he said, whatever they build, if even a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you. For they have provoked you to anger before the builders. So we built the wall and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height for the people had a mind to work. Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed that they became very angry. And all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God, and because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. I think, you know, in many ways, all of us are are in the middle of this, you guys. We're building walls in various ways, you know. I think for your own life. I think for the life of your family, your friends, your co-workers. I think for the church. We're all part of it, you know, to, to build the wall, and as you begin to make progress, I'm talking like real spiritual growth, and you get closer to God, and you start catching the vision, the enemy is going to come against you. So what do you do then? You know, a lot of people at this point, they get beat up and chewed up and spit up by the enemy. They get defeated by the devil. But it's cool to be able to read this and to know what we're supposed to do. And even to know, the Bible says that we're not to be ignorant of the devil's devices. Some of you here, you've been seeking the Lord, and I've taught to you, and I've been blessed to see what God's been doing in your life. But then all of a sudden, the devil comes in, man, and just all hell breaks loose in your house or at your work or in your body. And, and you know, it's just the enemy trying to discourage you. And so we've got to know the way the enemy works, and we have to know the way God works. And by that and in that, I think we can have victory. And so we see, first of all, what I want to focus on, number one is the opposition of the enemy. We see uh, his temper there in verse 1. It says, but it so happened when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, notice that he was furious and very indignant. I mean, the enemy, when he sees you're making progress, when he sees you're going forward, you start going to church. You know, sometimes it's really cool how people, not just on Sundays, but then they start hitting the midweek service. Next thing you know, they're going to a women's study or a men's midweek study or, you know, a prayer meeting. Maybe they start getting involved in, in, in ministry, you know, and, and what, what the enemy sees that, let me tell you, man, he is furious that you're taking those types of steps. Man, he is so upset. And that's what we see the, that would happen. Their, their fury would actually grow, we'll see later, when they were very angry. And then it spreads with the Ammonites and the Astrodites. And so even more people begin to get upset. And so the enemy is very indignant as a result of this, and this is just the way the enemy is. Uh, We read in Revelation 12, verse 17, it says, and the dragon was enraged with the women, and that's in reference to Israel, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so, you know, this is in reference to Israel, but it's also in a roundabout way, a biblical truth that the devil is furious. He's enraged, it says right here, with anyone who has a testimony of Jesus Christ, with anyone who has a heart to obey the commandments of God. And so what does he do? He makes war, Okay. And so we're in a war. I don't know if you know that or not, but I pray that we would. We got to know what's going on. That way we know how to fight the war. We don't fight the war by getting mad back. We don't fight the war by raising our voice at our spouse or, you know, going and, and you know what, I'm just going to slip away and, you know, make the pain go away and have a couple of drinks or, you know, take a couple of pills. You know, we don't fight like that. No, we fight with spiritual weapons, right? Because we know the enemy's mad. We read back in, in chapter 2. If you want to go to chapter 2, remember that verse in, in verse 10. It says when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. I mean, these guys were were deeply disturbed. They're they're angry, they're furious. Why? Why? Because somebody really cares about the people. You know, Nehemiah wasn't in it for the position. He already had one. You know, Nehemiah wasn't in it for the money. He already had money. Nehemiah was in it for the glory of God and for the good of the people. And when the devil sees that that's someone's pure motive, that that's the real reason they're involved in ministry, you know, then i tell you what, he gets just completely furious and he'll do everything he can to stop you from going forward any longer, you guys. And so it's a, it's a real battle, you know. And, and I just want to encourage you, even along those, as a side note, you know, are you here for that reason? When you serve in ministry, are you really in it for the well-being of the people? You know, and I thank God when the Lord raises up people like that. And I know, you know, I check my own motives, to be, to be honest with you. I'm like, okay, why, not just what do I do, but why do I do what I do? You know, do I really care for the people? Do I really want that marriage to be blessed? Do I really want that young person to grow in the Lord and to, to you know, grow up and become a godly man and a godly woman? Is that why I'm here? Am I here because I, I like, I love to teach? Or am I here because I love the people that I teach? Big difference, you know. That that's why we should be involved in ministry because we just want people to flourish. We want them to get saved. We want them to to grow in their walk with the Lord and to know Him and to be used by Him. You know, that's where Nehemiah was. And you know, one day I'll stand before God and I'll give an account. You know, as far as I know, I judge. I, I check my own motives. I'm like, Lord, am I in this for the right reason? And you know, I I think I am. I love you guys. I want you guys to be blessed. But one day I'll stand before God and really all our motives will be then exposed before the Lord. So that's why we're here. We're here not just to see what can I get. We're here to see what can I give and how can I help that person in the Lord, you know? And so when you're in that ministry for that reason, the devil will be furious and that's what we see happened here we see his temper and then number 2 we see his tactics sanballat was furious and very indignant so what did he do let's look at some of the things that he did and the way that he attacked the first thing i see is that he tried to create a huge distraction a huge distraction Look at verse two, it says, and he spoke before his brethren and the army of Samaria. And he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? What are these feeble Jews doing? And, you know, he says it that uh, the enemies can hear and the allies can hear, the Jews can hear. What if someone went up to you and you said, you ain't nothing but some feeble people. You know, you're, you're nothing. That's basically what he's saying. The word, right here in, in the in the original language, it means lamentable and wretched. Uh, Webster, as a matter of fact, tells us that the word feeble is from Latin origin, and it means uh, to lament and weep. And so you're like, why is it have that origin? And the reason is, it's you weep due to the lack of strength and weakness and deficiency and quality of resources. And so this is someone really weak. Um, And I don't know if you guys ever feel that way. I mean, do you ever feel feeble? Do you ever feel weak? You should. You kind of should, to be honest with you. Because we are in our own strength. We are. But then what happens when you become a Christian is you realize and you pray and you cry out to God and you ask Him for strength. And then the Lord provides us with His strength. That's how I was able to stay sexually pure by the grace of God. That's how I was able to, you know, say no to alcohol and drugs. It was the grace of God, the man that made this feeble man a, a little stronger. And now what happens is our trust and our faith is in him and our focus should be as well. See, what the devil does is he distracts you into getting your eyes on yourself. That's the biggest distraction of all. That'll get in the way of all the great things that God wants you to do when all you do is focus on your own feebleness. What are these feeble Jews doing? What are these feeble folks, church, doing? They're nothing but feeble, weak. They should weep over their weakness. And what ends up happening is he actually, you know, distracts us Because when you get your eyes on yourself, you ain't going to go nowhere. Where should our eyes be? On the Lord. On the Lord. When you have your eyes on the Lord, there ain't nothing you can't do. God does great things. And so the first thing he tries to do is to try to distract them. You know, the, the enemy opposes us. You with your feeble little prayer meetings. He lies to us, you know, he says, oh, it's so small, it's so insignificant. And yet there you are building the walls. You know, he just lies to us, you and your Bible study and your so-called church services. Ha, there wasn't a harvest tonight, you know, and, and he tells us stuff like that. But we know better than the way the enemy speaks to us. We know better than that, don't we? I mean, you know, the ministry says when we do Bible studies, one plants, one waters, it's God who gives the increase, it's God who brings in the harvest. Not only that, you know, it's important for us to know regarding Bible studies, Chuck Smith would always say this, that I'm here to feed the sheep and then the sheep beget the sheep. And so, you know, I praise God, you know, in the church, people are getting saved. People come forward. We talk to people and it's exciting what God's doing, the new work in hearts. But the primary thing that's taking place right here, I want you guys to know this, is you are being equipped. That's what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12. When you go to Bible study and you hear pastors and teachers giving you the word, you are being equipped for ministry, And then you go out there in the highways and byways and God uses you to raise up your family. God uses you to disciple your family. God uses you to share the Lord with someone, you know, at jack-in-the-box or wherever you end up going at, you know, Walmart, you know, stuff like that. God uses you and you're sharing with the homeless people. You start a ministry on Skid Row. God uses you with those parachurch ministries. What we're doing right here is we're equipping the saints for works of ministry. So don't let the enemy lie to you and say, oh, that small and insignificant prayer meeting or that small and insignificant study of the scriptures. There's no such things. What we're doing right here is we're building walls. But the devil will try to distract us and make us think that it's nothing, it's just feeble. You see, the the, the thing I, I see the enemy do here, number one is that that one distraction, when you get your eyes on yourself instead of the Lord, And then he follows that up with four demoralizing questions. Again, look at verse 2. Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? Will they fortify themselves? You see, the purpose of Sanballat questioning the people was to make the people question themselves and then ultimately question the work, and then question even God himself. What is he doing? He's trying to wear them down with doubt, right? That's what he's doing right here, you know? I mean, they were attempting a massive work. And from a human perspective, it was against all odds. And he wanted them to stop. And and, and I want you guys to stop, stop for a second, you know? You're just kind of doing it. Stop and take a look at how monumental of a task this is. Look at how big that, that giant is. Or look at how you know, massive that mountain is. Right. And again, we see him you know, questioning them. But, but you guys, the work that God does, he can do anything. Nothing too hard for him. The greatness of the giant must be seen in the greatness of God. When I compare Goliath to God, there's no comparison. We have to believe that God is able to do anything according to his will, right? I mean, there's a a really neat guy. When you get a chance, I encourage you guys to study out his life. His name is William Carey. And he made this quote famous. He said, Expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Do we do that? What's the next step? What's the Lord been showing you? What's the great thing that you are attempting because you believe and are expecting God to do great things? You see, the enemy comes in and he says, no, I want to question everything and question the work and question the God and question yourself. And next thing you know, know, you're defeated by the enemy. You know, William Carey was born in a small village in England, in the middle of England. He didn't have much of an education, but uh, eventually he got saved. He taught himself Greek with a book that he borrowed from a friend. He eventually went on and taught himself Latin, and he taught himself Hebrew. This was the guy that got stirred up, and he began to pray. He was inspired by the Moravian movement Another thing I want to encourage you guys to study out, the Moravian movement was a group of people who prayed straight through for a hundred years. Think about that. A hundred year prayer meeting. See, and you guys thought our three-hour prayer meetings were long. A hundred years. But then God began to stir him up and what ended up happening is one day he's standing before his board. It was uh, um, late 1700s. And uh he said, I believe that God wants us to do missions overseas. And one of the leaders there in his denomination said, Sit down, young man. When God wants to save the people on the other side of the world, he will do it without your help. And I'm not quoting verbatim, but that's basically what he said. But William Carey didn't give up. It was so cool. Um in seventeen ninety-two he wrote a work that became well known. You know, he was trying to stir up the church to do missions overseas because they weren't doing it. And then in 1792, he also started a group uh, for missions. And then a year later, he and one of his uh, companions, along with his friends, I mean, with his family, they sailed to India. and uh, And it wasn't easy. You know, they were there uh, for seven years. No converts. Now, how many of you after seven years of no converts would say, I don't think it's God's will. I think I'm going to go home now. You know, I think a lot of us probably would. But the thing about the ministry and the thing about the Lord is that you have to stay in communion with him. You have to stay in intimacy with him and have a devotional life with him because then he'll tell you what to do all along the way. So William Carey stayed there even though the other guy left. His five-year-old son died. His wife went crazy. She had to be secluded to a room. I mean, you know, when things like this happen, no one's getting saved. I tell you what, most of us here would give up. But he kept his eyes on the Lord. And then finally, in the year 1800, someone got saved. And then he baptized them. And next thing you know, he learns Bengali, and he learns a language. And a year after that, he translates it into their language, the New Testament. And then... As time progresses, 28 uh, uh, different languages, dialects there in India of the Bible were given to the people because of the ministry of William Carey. You know, he never came home. He never had a furlough. I mean, he was just sold out and surrendered, completely committed. He had a heart and he lived it out that said, Expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. See? And that's where we should be as well. I pray that God would stir us up, whatever it is that he calls you to do. You know, for us right here, Sandballad is trying to question all that. In verse 2, he says, will they fortify themselves? And so he's trying to doubt their fortification or protection. They'll never be able to protect themselves. He says, will they offer sacrifices? Oh, they'll never, ever get saved or have forgiveness. I mean, it's just, it's not going to happen. Will they complete it in a day? And that just goes to show you how hard they were working, but probably in a roundabout sense, he's saying they'll never finish, right? And will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? And, and for, you know, some of you here, maybe, you know, the enemy is telling you that you'll never revive the work that was once started in your life. You know, you, you've you blown it too many times, man. You've crossed the line. There, there's no revival for you. And he just questions everything, right? He questions everything. That's the way the enemy works. It's the habit of hell to strip our hearts of hope. No, I, I will Seek the Lord and build a wall and protect my family. And I will offer sacrifices and find forgiveness and restore relationship with God. I will experience revival. I will finish the work one day. But the enemy wants us to question those things, right? And it's just this tactic from the very beginning. Do you remember what the devil did to Eve? What did he do? He questioned God, right? Just trying to plant little seeds of doubt within her. You guys, don't let the devil slice you up with that double-edged sword of doubt and discouragement. Get your eyes off yourself. None of us are worthy. You will never be worthy. None of us are able. We will never be able to do this on our own. But when we get our eyes on the Lord, it changes everything. And next thing you know, God starts raising up Nehemiahs all over the place. You see, his tactics... Because he's so furious. Number one, to distract us. This major distraction of getting our eyes on ourselves. Number two, the demoralizing questions to try to create doubt. But then number three is that defeating prediction. Notice it says there in verse 3, Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Whatever they build, if even a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. What's he saying? He's predicting that even if they do all that stuff, at the end, it's going to mean nothing. At the end, it equals to failure, right? I mean, recently, uh, the men in the men's study uh, studied this as well. And they discovered that after the wall was built, Nehemiah dedicated the wall with multitudes of leaders and choir members marching on that wall. So here he's saying, I just want you to know that you'll never make a difference, that you'll never finish, that your ministry is just going to crumble, because even if a little fox goes on, it's going to get messed up. And, And at the end of the day, what do we find? We find choirs and leaders and multitudes of people marching on the wall, praising God, right? And that's when we have to make sure that we raise up that shield of faith and we quench every fiery dart of the wicked one, right? Satan is a liar. And one of the most important things that we have to do as Christians is to stop believing his lies. You know, God help us to receive and believe the truth as Nehemiah did. You guys are familiar with that passage in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. See, because the enemy says, well, just step down. You don't need to serve. You know, I mean, it's not going to make any difference anyway, so why not just kick back? Right? And the Lord says, no, you should, as a matter of fact, be abounding in the service of the Lord, immovable, steadfast. Don't let the enemy take you out of your place. Why? Because as you serve, nothing is in vain. So we see his tactics, uh, major distraction, demoralizing questions, a defeating prediction. Number four, mental manipulation. Look at verse 7. Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed. They became very angry and all of them conspired to... Together, to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. How many of you here believe in conspiracy theories? It's (laughs) It's funny, you know, there's a lot of conspiracy theories out there, and I don't know if you guys get all excited about stuff like that. I kind of don't, you know. But um, this one I do. It says right there that the devil, the enemy, conspires against us, Right? And this is kind of like a mental manipulation. They're threats in order to create fear, a fear that would paralyze the people and cause the work to cease. You know, and of course, we know right here, uh, we know Sanballat was more than likely, you know, the head of the army. And so you got a lot, you got soldiers coming against you, you got Ammonites, you got Ashdodites, you got the Arabs. I mean, there's a lot of people here, right? That, you know, he says are going to come against you. And, and one of the things about the enemy that you guys got to know is, uh, is that he can bark, but he can't bite. You guys ever see, you guys ever go to the movies and it's one of those movies where, you know, it's a lot of action and necessarily the hero of the movie, um, you know, he's fighting. And you guys watching the movie and you just know that he can't die because he's the star. And you already know there's a sequel that they're making. And he's, you know, you know what I'm saying? I mean, there's certain, there's movies like that. You just like, you're knowing, well, he can't die. And for us, you know, in one sense, the same is true. We're invincible until God says it's time to go home. And if it's time to go home, how many of you want to go home? I want to go home. To be honest with you, I'd rather be with the Lord than with you. No offense, man. (laughs) But until then, don't let the enemy strike any type of fear into your heart, right? I mean, we need to be anchored in the truth that if anything ever touches us physically, when God is our Father, then it has been filtered through His loving and sovereign hands. And there is nothing to be afraid of. You know, and so these guys are threatening Nehemiah. And so we're going to see later, it doesn't mean that you can't have a watchtower or a watchdog, or or a gun. <laughs> it doesn't mean that you can't have an alarm system, or that you can't protect yourself, or defend yourself. You can. But whatever you do, the, t- the main thing is, don't let those physical fears ever stop you, in any way from serving the Lord, in every way that He calls you to. See? Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. You see, so the enemy, he tries to attack us physically, and he might bark, but he can't bite. Don't even worry about it. But another one that's probably even more effective is he tries to create confusion, right? And that's what it says right there. And all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. I would venture to say that there are some people here today who are confused. There's no clarity in your life. There's not. Like, there's not like that vision that God has given you. These are your marching orders, son. This is what I want you to do. You know, but you're bouncing to and fro. And there's no steadfastness. There's no confidence in Christ like Nehemiah had in the living God. How do I know that? Why do I know that? Well, because I know the way the church is. And, and secondly, I just know the way the enemy is. And he tries to create confusion. Other translations say to stir up trouble or, or create some type of disturbance. And the word confusion, it speaks of a lack of understanding, a lack of clarity, a bewilderment, an uncertainty. It it leads to panic and a breakdown in order. And this is really the worst thing for any group of people that are working together for a common cause confusion. What do we do? What do we do? You know, the enemy comes in and he tries to create confusion. It's the antithesis to order. It's the opposite of teamwork. It defeats progress. You know, so cool. Yesterday, I got to tell you guys this. Um, uh, woke up in the morning and I told my wife, because we got some laminate flooring. We purchased it in July and it's been kicking back in the boxes. in my. Well, we purchased it in January. What am I saying? <laughs> it's even worse, huh? And so anyways, finally yesterday, I just, you know how sometimes you just kind of need that little fire, you know, that, that inspiration to kind of do things? Well, yesterday I had it, right? And so I woke up early in the morning, I said, I'm going to do this. And uh, and it was so cool. What ended up happening was uh, my son and my daughter, they just caught the vision to help me. It was so cool. And, you know, not to say anything mean about them, but... That doesn't usually happen, to be honest with you. <laughs> At least not without a little leverage or, you know, a little bit of uh, whatever, coercion. But, um, man, it was so cool. Uh, I know for a fact that, I'll be honest with you, that that it couldn't have been done without them. I mean, I would have gone halfway through. I mean, they, you know, prepped the floor for me. I mean, they were laying down the, the laminate. As I would go through, my son was making cuts. And the cool thing about my son is he's really good with, with numbers. And so he was just measuring them perfectly and he'd cutting it, you know, the, with the with a chop saw. And next thing you know, we break out the skill saw. And it was awesome. And, and you know, together we had this, this system going. We had this teamwork going, you know. And for us, for most people, it probably would have took three hours. For us, it took 13 hours. But, you know... <laughs> It was just so cool when it was all said and done. I was like, not only was it, you know, awesome because we got the floor done, but because I got to spend time on my family like that. Man. And my wife was over there overseeing as well, just <laughs> to let you know. <laughs> and she was doing some other things behind the scenes. It was all part of the teamwork. But, but what happens a lot of times is the enemy comes in and he tries to just somehow mess that up, right? It's called confusion. But man, that's the antithesis of what God wants to do. You know, you can't go anywhere without, without teamwork. If you have confusion, uh, everything will stop. It's for that reason, if you remember, in the building of the Tower of Babel, God created confusion in Genesis chapter 11, verse 7. He confused the languages there. And what happened to the work? If you guys remember, you guys read the story? What happened? It ceased. Everybody split. Everybody went in different directions. God confused the rebellious, and there were many times when you read the Bible. Actually, when God confused the opposing armies of Israel, and in doing so, defeated them. You know, a lot of times people would say, "Well, God is not the author of confusion," and it's true. The Bible does say that in 1 Corinthians fourteen thirty-three. But when you read that verse, it says that He's not the author of confusion in the church. In the church. So if it happens in the church and if it happens to Christians, then we know it's not the Lord. But God will do that to the opposing armies because God will give victory to his people. Because the principle is that if there's confusion, there's not going to be any progress. And so we need to have that in our heart, you guys. What we see in looking at this was that was the tactic of the enemy. And he will come against us, man, with everything that he has. Now, maybe you're here tonight and you're saying, well, life isn't like that for me. I mean, I haven't experienced any mockery or conspiracy. As a matter of fact, I don't even have an enemy, Manny. Well, if that's you, then maybe you shouldn't sit there and congratulate yourself. It might be that the enemy sees you're not building any walls. Your idleness and lack of work for God, he knows and therefore doesn't oppose. When you're doing the work of the Lord, the enemy will come against you, right? And that's okay, it's clockwork. But God will use that for good. So we see the opposition of the enemy, but secondly, we see the proper response of God's people. And three things, real quick. Uh, First thing is, they had a mind to work. Look what it says there in verse 6. So we built the wall. And the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. So now that we know, and this isn't everything, as we continue going through the book of Nehemiah, we're going to see more of the tactics of the enemy. But now that we know the way that he operates, I think it helps us. And now we've we got to know, well, what are some of the ways that we respond? And Number one, we've got to pray for a mind to work. A lot was getting done. The progress was obvious. Nehemiah himself attributes it. I love what he says. He doesn't say it's me. He says the people. It's so cool. They had a mind to work. And in looking at the Hebrew word and comparing different translations, really it appears that they were enthusiastic about the work. When he says they had a mind to work, what he's kind of saying is that that mentality led to enthusiasm. It led to enthusiasm. They weren't working forcibly. They weren't working reluctantly. They were working enthusiastically. And that's the way ministry should be approached. You know, when you're serving the Lord in different ways, and ministry is not just here at church, but yeah, it is here. But wherever you go, however you serve, you're serving that person at your house, you should be doing that ministry enthusiastically. Really, enthusiasm is one of the most important things in life. One person said, A man can succeed at almost anything for which he has enthusiasm. Another person said, Every great and commanding movement in the annals of the world is the triumph of enthusiasm. Nothing great was ever achieved without it. And so we really should have a mind to work and to do so with enthusiasm. We should be excited to work for God in light of the work He's done for us. Amen? I mean, isn't that what worship is? You know, why do you worship God? Because of who He is and what He's done. That's why we worship God, because of who He is and what He's done. How do you worship God? Well, we sing. That's part of it. And that is part of it. But that's not everything. When you get a chance, read Romans 12, 1 and 2. And it says that your reasonable act of worship is, number one, to present your body as a living sacrifice. What is that? That's surrender. That's sanctification. That's God, I give you my life. That's worship. Song is part of it. Sanctification is the heart of it. But you continue to read Romans 12 in light of everything that God's done, and not just song and sanctification, but service. He goes on to say, and we read verses 3 and forward, that you are supposed to be serving the Lord. You see? And that should be our act of worship. And as you serve, you should do so with enthusiasm. You should work for God because of the work He's done for you. See? See? And so that's how we, we you know, defeat the enemy. Number one, we've got to have a mind to work, that is with enthusiasm. And then secondly, we see they had a, a heart to pray. So they had a mind to work and a heart to pray. Look at what happens there in verse 4 after they say their thing. He immediately prays, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you. So he's praying, right? And what is he basically saying? God, send them to hell. That's kind of what he's saying. You guys guys are okay with that? When they get mad at you, you're like, Lord, send them to hell. Brick their teeth. Dash their their children against the rocks. There are some Psalms that are like that. Do you guys ever want to pray that over someone you struggle with? Well, they did here. Well, let me just tell you guys that we shouldn't do this. Um, I will will say this. They're called imprecatory Psalms. Here's the thing. It's okay to confess the way you feel about people if you struggle with them. Having a hard time loving someone. But don't think it's okay to stay there. See, the truth is, if you harbor hate within you, then you won't have the assurance of salvation. So in looking at this, you know, these guys are early on in Old Testament. We know Jesus came along. What did Jesus say? Love your enemies. Pray for your enemies. 1 John chapter 2 verse 9 and 11 and chapter 3 verse 15 and chapter 4 verse 20 say that if you don't love them, if you hate them, then you are not a Christian. So in looking at this, I I mean, just the first thing is, I just want you guys to know, he prayed immediately and he prayed honestly. So it's okay to do that, but just whatever you do, don't stay there. What I've realized is that there is no person who is my enemy. I don't have any person as an enemy. I don't. But I do have an enemy. Ultimately, it's who? It's Satan. It's not Sandballet. It's Satan. And I do pray, Lord, send them to the pit before their time. I do pray stuff like that. <laughs> but in looking at this, I think for us, it's kind of interesting how prayer is like a sandwich This is the most important part in the two things, three things that we're talking about. You know, the first is working and then we're going to see later watching. But in between that is praying. And that's why I like what we read right there in verse 9. Nevertheless. See, after the enemy comes in he says, I'm going to take you down. I'm going to kill you. He says, nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God. So how are you going to defeat the enemy? How are you going to defeat Him? Number one, start serving Him enthusiastically. Number two, start praying wholeheartedly. I give myself to prayer. And next thing you know, your prayer life begins to blossom and you begin to grow in this. I I like that word, nevertheless. Don't ever, never think that God will bless the lesser things we do, like working or watching, if, we're not praying. Nevertheless, don't let it just be the the lesser things of working and watching without praying. See, we have to have everything. You know, I realize it's tempting because they're opposing and planning and coming closer and closer, but I love what Nehemiah said. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God. You see, we can do anything after we pray, but we can do nothing until after we prayed. And after we pray, then God will work. And I love the words of Oswald Chambers who said, Prayer does not fit us for the greater works. Prayer is the greater work. You see that? When's your battle really won? In the, in the heat of the battle? No, your battle is won on your knees when you prayed that morning. Lord, help me to keep my eyes in check so I don't check out chicks. Lord, help me in that time of temptation when I want to take a drink or I want to take a pill or when I want to get mad. You know, it's it's when you're there praying that's when the battle's won. When did Jesus win the battle for the cross? In the Garden of Gethsemane, right? And for us, we got to know this thing, guys. You know, I read a really cool story uh, on the importance of prayer. And it's always stuck with me, you know. One of the greatest men, another great man of God, is a man by the name of D.L. Moody, and uh, he was talking about how one time he was in London and he was uh, sharing testimony of what God was doing. And after that testimony, one of the pastors came up to him and he said, "Can you preach at the the church I serve at? Can you preach there tomorrow morning and tomorrow night?" And so D.M. Moody said, okay, I'll do it. And so he went to the church next day, Sunday morning, and he preached the sermon and he was sharing with them. And uh, they were just like dead. It was a dead church. I mean, he was telling the best jokes. Nobody was laughing. I mean, nothing was working, right? And so as he's, you know, going through this whole thing, he just wants to get out of there. And then he thought to himself, oh, no, I have to come back tonight. Right, and so he didn't want to, but he said, "Well, I gave him my word, and I'll come back." And so, sure enough, he comes back Sunday night, and what ends up happening is same thing: it's cold, no one is receptive, there's nothing going on, and so uh, you know, he he said he just you know did his best, and next thing you know, about halfway through the service, he sensed that things started changing. And he sensed like this, the people started getting sensitive. And next thing you know, he just, he just man, there was like this radical difference in the room. And before you know it, he asked, anybody here want to receive Christ? And he just said, hands went up everywhere. And he was like, well, no, wait a minute, time out. And three times he said, are you sure you want to receive the Lord? I mean, you are going to repent of your sins and and, and make Jesus your Savior and King and Lord. And, and then even still after that, he said, okay, well, no, I want to make sure you guys are serious. And so he said, if you're serious and meet me in the inquiry room and after service and sure enough, man, tons of people went down there and he got saved. They got saved. And so... You know, he was wondering. He said, "I don't get it. I was doing the same thing, preaching the same, you know, message, but all of a sudden something changed." And he said, "I got to find out what happened here." And so, you know, uh, it took him a, a few days. What ended up happening was he went back to Scotland, and uh, and as soon as he got there, there was a message from him to come back to London because the people were hungry. They wanted a revival. He, taught, he came back, taught for two weeks, 400 people got saved. And in his mind, he's knowing this is not, this is not normal. What triggered all this? And as he continued to investigate, eventually he found out that, that there was this little lady. And so he went to go visit this lady. And what had happened was years earlier, she had suffered a debilitating accident to where she was now bedridden. And she couldn't, she, couldn't, she couldn't get out. And so she was uh, mourning the fact that she could no longer serve in ministry and God even used that to kind of awaken her and stir her up. And, uh, and, she's, and, and she said, I can't do anything. And one of her friends said, well, you can pray. And so sure enough, from that moment on, she began to commit herself to prayer. And what she did was she prayed for the church. That she used to go to, that church that Moody was preaching at, the cold church, the dead church, the one where nothing was happening. And she started praying for years. Then one day she comes across a magazine article sharing a little bit of the story of Dia Moody, who had been seeing revival in America. And she said, Lord, um, bring him to our church, bring him to our dead church, our cold church. And she started praying that prayer and just years went by. And then one day, because she would ask her friend after service every Sunday, how was it today? And then, you know, her friend would say it was the same, you know, kind of the same old thing. Cold songs, cold service, you know, until finally one Sunday, um, her friend came after service and uh, she asked her, how was service today? And she said, oh, it was okay. We had a guest you know, pastor, speaker, evangelist, a weird name, something like Moody or something like that. And, and then she's all, really? And she said, okay, I don't want any lunch today. I don't want any visitors today. Go away, leave me alone. I just want to pray. And it was at that moment when the Holy Spirit fell on those people. And it, it's just so cool, you guys. You know, When we have a mind to work and we have a heart to pray for years. Isn't that amazing what God did? The last thing we see right here is they had eyes to watch. You know, it says right there in verse 9, Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God and because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. Those are the three things that we learn from today's study. A mind to work with enthusiasm, a heart to pray as we should, and eyes to watch. And we're going to see a lot of this as we go through Nehemiah. You guys, the enemy is on the prowl. What does the Bible say? Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And so I pray, you guys, we would be encouraged by this. And I I love what Augustine said. He said, pray as if everything depends on God and work as if everything depends on you. And as we have that balance, God does an awesome work.